in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Now today we're going to be finishing up the book of 1 Peter, and we have been able to cram these five chapters into 16 sermons, which consist of over eight hours of preaching, and I would dare say that we've exhausted everything that we can learn from the book of 1 Peter. So I would, continue, I would, to, I would like to encourage you to continue learning from this book as your uh, Christian walk continues. But in chapter 5, it begins whenever Peter starts to really wrap up his thoughts and to bring this general epistle to a close. Now, the reason why it's called a general epistle, I don't know if I've spoken to this yet, is it was, it was not written to a specific church in mind, but more of a general letter to those who were scattered because of the persecution in, in the areas in which are, are, um, are named in verses 1 and 2. So it's kind of a general letter meant to go out to the Christians of the persecution, of the dispersion, and to be copied and dispersed amongst all of them so they could hear and learn from the teachings of the Apostle Peter, specifically concerning their situation and their circumstances. And as he is wrapping this up and everything that he's really kind of um, you know, taught in this, you know, from an overview of the entire book, he has constantly reminded them about the heavenly inheritance that they have and what they have in Christ and how they are to live before God and to endure the word. He has reminded them that they are the chosen generation that has the duty to proclaim the praises of him who's called them out of darkness and into light. And that since we have been called in from the darkness into the light, we are... Um, we are responsible for living in the world as someone who is in the light with a great example that whenever they see our good works that they too may glorify God in the, in the visitation. He talked in respects of submission to the government, to, uh, to your employers, husbands to wives and wives to husbands. And also in the midst of the persecution, regardless of whether we are reviled or spoken evil against, that we're not to return reviling for reviling or evil for evil, but we are called to be a blessing. And as much as it depends on us, we are to remain at peace with the people around us. And in that, with, and, but with that, we never, we never, um, it never diminishes our obligation to walk in faith with Christ. In, um, in chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, but even, verse 13, and who will bring harm to you if you are followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And don't be afraid of them, nor be dismayed because of them. So, so even in doing good, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, he really gets into the topic here of suffering. And suffering is a high probability when you follow Jesus Christ. The best case scenario is to continue to be good and continue to be a blessing to everyone, but suffering is likely to come when you follow Jesus Christ in this world. And he wants to encourage them, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of what has brought them to the suffering, which was living for Christ, to continue to do that. So, and, and also in the face of suffering and persecution, to remain faithful. We are to remain faithful to, um, to God and to be good stewards of the grace that he has given us, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and also share in the sufferings of Christ and rejoice when we have been, um, been uh, when we find ourselves worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Because when we, are, because when we are reproached for the name of Christ, we are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you with a 
um, with a refreshing spirit that will renew you to continue to move forward. So, so a lot of what he has, has talked about here, he starts to really wrap it up. Now, there's a couple different areas that he speaks to specifically. And the first area that he, that he speaks to, let's see, my clicker. There we go, maybe. My clicker is apparently not, not working there. All right, there we go. All right, so, so when he's wrapping his, um, his letter up, he's giving some final exhortations to the people and to his readers, his audience. And the first thing that he addresses, the, the first people within that group are the elders. His final exhortation begins with the elders, and he says, The elders who are among you I exhort. So he wants to encourage the elders that are among them. They are among the, the, the dispersed, the persecuted, but he also wants to address the elders who are among those who are, dispersed, who are dispersed. And he goes on to say, he says, I who am a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Now what Peter is doing here, he's saying, look, I am a fellow elder. I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as someone who is a partaker of the glory that is to come. Um, Chris, is, am I coming through the monitors at all, Chris? No, not at all? Okay. Must be reflecting somehow. All right. Um, okay, so I've just distracted myself. All right, that's better. For me, is that good for y'all? Can y'all still hear me? All right, good. Okay, so as Peter is, is um, addressing the elders, he's like, look, I'm a fellow elder, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that is to come, so therefore I think my qualifications are there in order to instruct you elders in what to do, giving the, give, giving the circumstances in which you find yourself. And so Peter is he's starting off to talk to, the, to talk to the elders, but I like the mindset that he has taken. You know, that Peter is someone who has already uh, tried to instill this type of mindset in the people, but he says, I am a partaker in what? The glory that is what? Here and now, or that is to be revealed? He says, I am a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. So his mindset is, I am willing to suffer now, but yet because glory is coming. What drives the people of God and what should drive the people of God in the face of persecution and in the, face of, in, in the face of suffering, is that glory is coming. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, and that is something that is set in stone, secured by God through your faith for salvation, and it is being ready and held for you to be revealed to you in the last day. There's nothing that can possibly take that away, and that's why Peter was actually able to say over and over again through this, through this letter, you are blessed, you are blessed. The eyes of God are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayers, the, um, the spirit of glory and God will rest upon you, humble yourselves before God, because you are blessed. So with that guarantee, there should, that should motivate us to be at least willing to suffer because of Christ. And Peter was, had that very mindset. I'm a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed in the future. He realized that he himself was a sojourner, a pilgrim in the land, that this was not his home, but his home was in eternity. And so as he, he is exhorting these elders to do what? In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. 
serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, nor for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So he's giving them instruction to shepherd the flock that is among them. To be an overseer, so what does it mean to really be an overseer? Well, it simply means someone who is going to watch out for the flock. And for what reasons? Well, if there's a need within the flock that needs to be met, he should get together with the body of Christ to make sure that that need can be met as long as the resources and the people are available to meet that need, to meet the needs of them. If there are weaknesses within the body of Christ, then they, they seek to find a resolution that will strengthen those areas of weakness. But I think one of the major points that an overseer or a shepherd of the flock is called to do is to be is to watch out for predators and protect them. One of the main focuses of a shepherd with his sheep was to keep them alive, was to fend off the predators that were in the land and to keep them from attacking his sheep and to and taking them from him. Now, if we take a look at um, Acts chapter twenty, we see a, we see an instance here where Paul has called together the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he is explain to them, I'm probably going away and you're not going to see me ever again. So I need to give you some warning here. I'm going to give you some instruction. And he lays something down for the elders of the church of Ephesus. And you'll find it sounds very similar to what Peter has already said. So in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, as Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, therefore, take to yourselves and to all of the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Great responsibility for the elders of the church of Ephesus. To watch, to be watchful, to be mindful, to um, protect and to see and to cherish and to care for God's purchased church. The church to which he had paid a great price in the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 29 he says this, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's saying that the outside predators are going to come in. Paul is thinking in his mind that, that I'm not going to see them again. Most likely I will be dead before I will actually have the opportunity to come back to, uh, to Ephesus and to be with them. And he's saying, I'm, I'm afraid that after I leave and after my departure... People are going to think that you're easy prey because I'm no longer here. But elders, I need you to step up and protect and watch over this flock because whenever I leave, I think that savage wolves will come in and they will have no mercy on this flock. So be watchful and to protect them. So not only is, he to, is, is the elders to watch over and to protect from the outside in, but Paul also has a fear of the inside to be pulled out. In verse 30, it says, Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So not only is the elder's job to watch from the outside in, but also from the inside out. How many of y'all have ever heard of a church split? Anybody? Okay, yeah, it, it happens. I know it's not very common. But however, it, it does happen that whenever people within the church will try to raise up and they get a following, they, they get people on their side and it causes a split. You have people fighting over stupid opinions about the color of a carpet. I know it's cliche, but there's a reason why it's cliche, okay? 
in, in rising up and causing divisions, you know, with, within the church. And the, elders, the elders' job is to watch out for that, you know, to be careful. And I believe that maybe in some cases, maybe not all cases, whenever you have a church split, maybe the elders not doing the job, you know, and being watchful for that and actually taking care of it when it needs to be taken care of. But, it, but, it, but in the sense, the elder is to oversee the church of God, the purchased church of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, and to shepherd the flock. Now, there are different motivations why people do this, but there are some good motivations as well as some bad motivations. And Peter is, is, um, is making the distinctions here. As an overseer, watch out for them, you know, protect them from, protect, from predators, and also, but not by compulsion, but do it willingly. So not by compulsion, so not necessarily out of necessity or constraint, just because nobody else is doing it and, well, you've got a, you've got a job to do. But this should be done out of a willing heart, out of a love for God and his church in order to edify the body and glorify God in being an overseer as a shepherd, as an elder in the church. So not by compulsion. It should be done willingly. This should be something that's done out of a devotion to God and not simply out of duty. It's just something I guess I guess God to do. And not for dishonest gain, but should be done eagerly. So it shouldn't be out of a personal gain that someone would want to take this in order to be able to control or even be able to rise up and cause a division and have disciples for yourself. It's not for your own personal gain. You know, it's not, about, it's not to be done for, for whatever I can get out of it, but whatever I can bring to the table, how I can serve God in this, in this place, how I can edify the body of Christ, what I can bring to the table, not what I can get out of it. That's not what you can do for your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church, if I can steal that. And as the elders, to be it's something to be done very eagerly, not, not done with, with hesitancy or reluctancy, but an eager willingness to do this, fulfill this calling. And not being lords over those, but living by examples. You know, the you know, the, within the elder of a church, the shepherd and an overseer, it's, it's not to, to lord over someone, but it's actually to be with them, to suffer with them when they suffer, to live an example that follows Christ that they may see as well as, um, see as, well as follow, as long as they are following Christ. So to be an example um, for the flock of God as well. So and the exhortation to the elders is that they are to shepherd the flock and oversee them and to do it for the right reasons, and to set an example before them. And for those who are faithful in fulfilling that calling of, the, of an elder, they will receive the crown of glory whenever Christ returns. So if crowns are your things, well, I guess elders are that's going to be good for them. But they will receive a crown of glory that will not fade away, and it will be an eternal gift and reward from Jesus Christ upon his return. And then next he goes into, he addresses the younger folks, and he says, likewise, younger people submit to your elders. You know, younger people could be age, and elders could represent someone who's old in physical age, and usually it, and usually it is. But also, but also the younger people to submit to the elders and to the leadership of the, of the body of Christ. Um, because the, the elders are typically and should be, you know, mature in age, mature in spirit, mature in the faith, and following Christ as setting examples. And he's saying to the young people to submit to them. 
you know, don't buck the leadership structure that God has in place for the church. You know, don't be one of those guys that Paul warned them about, about rising up and, and being resistant, but to be submissive and to follow, just like we have been talking about submission in the last several weeks. So, you know, submission is a, is a big key here, be, but be submissive to those elders and the leadership structure of, of the church. So not only does he address the elders and the young people, but this is where he get, gets into everyone. And in the, in the latter part of verse 5, So likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive. Man, woman, boy, and child, be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility and submit to one another and be clothed in humility. And as we've said over, over many times, you know, the body of Christ should be the most unified body there is. Because we stand on one common ground, and that's Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And we should be unified, we should be submitting to one another, we should be looking out for each other. We don't kick, we don't kick each other down, we don't tear anybody down, but we're always looking for reasons and ways to build people up, to strengthen, strengthen them in their faith, suffer alongside them, as well as encourage them to continue in the faith. Now, the attitude in which we do this, now understand that every, we don't like everybody equally, right? Nobody wants to look at me. <laughs> now, we have different personalities, and some people are just more difficult to get along with. But that, that's not, that, that shouldn't be a problem for the Christian believer, to exercise grace and to exercise humility and submission to one another. Now, there's, there's, no, there's no reason that we could not do that. Okay, we have the example in Christ. Okay, you're not the most angelic person either, but yet Christ still died for you. He still extends his grace to you, even in your sinful behavior. He still is gracious. But we are to submit to one another. And the, and the, and the, the mindset and the heart that we should have towards one another is we, we can take a look at Ephesians chapter you know, 1 and verse... Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 and two, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. <clears throat> to walk worthy of that calling. Our calling is to be submissive to one another, to be clothed in humility. And Paul is talking here, it's like to walk worthy of that calling, walk worthy of a disciple of Christ, and to do it in verse two with all lowliness, gentleness, with long suffering, that means patience, and bearing one another in love. So there's, there's a mindset and a condition in which we should meet whenever we're dealing with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Being submissive to one another. You know, always believe the best about them first. And do it with lowliness and gentleness. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, this is a really, this is a really kicker for us. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Okay, let nothing be done for selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, letting each esteem others better than themselves. Now it goes on to tell us that let each one of you not look out for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. So it's not that you don't take care of yourself and let yourself go downhill by trying to take care of everybody else. No, you've got to put bread on your table before you can put, somebody, put someone on somebody else's. The idea of this be done out of selfish ambition or conceit is don't do anything for your personal gain at the expense of other people. But we always look at the, 
at ways that we can esteem others even better than ourselves. Not looking out for our, our own selves only, but also for the interest of others. And that's what it really truly means when it comes down to it, to be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. I mean, humility is not what people commonly think humility is. It's not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not being pushed over. I actually think the very strongest people are the ones who can exercise humility. Those are the ones who do it. But it's a willing, humbling um, action that we do for the benefit of other people. Being submissive to one another, being clothed in humility. Now, why should we be clothed in humility? Not only for the benefit of ourselves and others, but simply because what we see here at the end of verse 5 is God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. If God gives grace to the humble, then I think I might want to be humble. I might want to humble myself before God because I need God's grace. I need God's grace in order to be humble myself and to be submissive to one another. I need God's grace for that. And where we find the grace to do that is when we humble ourselves before and under the mighty hand of God. And when we do that, it says that he will exalt us in due time. In verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. God's timing is always perfect. And we need God's grace to do that. So humble yourselves before the almighty hand of God. Now, whenever we do that, and we humble ourselves before God, it will allow us to do what? What's this whole book about? When we know that we're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, the strong hand of God, then we know that we can face persecution and suffering. Because we have an understanding that we are blessed. We have the understanding that God's eyes are upon us and his ears are open to our prayers. The spirit of glory and God are upon us with a refreshing power. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, the strong hand of God, nothing is going to go on that God does not know about. There's nothing that you're going to do in the name of Christ that is not noticed and rewarded for in eternity. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and knowing that that's where you are, it should give you the ability to do what verse 7 tells us, to cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. How would our lives be different if we had the, had the realization and the understanding that that is real, that we, are, that we, can, be, we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and that when we're living righteously and following Christ, that we are blessed because his eyes are always on us, his ears are always open to our prayers, and that the spirit of glory and God rest upon us when we find ourselves following Christ. And believing what the scripture tells us about, that God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and understanding the reality of where you are in Christ should give you the ability to cast your anxieties on him because it is true that he cares for you. Absolutely true. Even in the midst of persecution, you better believe it. Even while you're suffering, sure. When you're following Christ and humbling yourselves before him, you're resting under the mighty, powerful hand of God, and you should be able to trust him even in the face of persecution and in suffering. See, God will not only deliver the believers from their trouble in the future, 
but I also believe that he demonstrates his loving care even in the present, even in the midst of our troubles. So be clothed in humility. And finally, be sober, be vigilant, and resist. Here we see almost like a warning from Peter. Be sober, be vigilant, and resist. Resist the devil, your adversary, your enemy. But you'll see that it's going to be very difficult to resist the devil if you're not vigilant. It's going to be very difficult to be vigilant if you do not remain sober. So you'll see that these will kind of build on top of each other. We see be sober and be vigilant is a state of being in which you must be in order to recognize your enemy, in order to resist what he's throwing at you. So let's take a look at how that actually works. All right, so we look at be sober. What does that mean, to be sober? Generally speaking, it means to be abstaining from any, any kind of intoxication of any kind. Now, why would this be important? Well, because it skews good judgment. Would you agree? Now, I wonder how many of you, okay, well, excuse me. How many of you know someone in, in an intoxicated state made a decision that they regretted? Anybody know someone? Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows that guy, right? Now, but well, that, what has happened is they made a decision under the influence of a substance that they normally wouldn't have done having been sober. Correct? Right. So therefore, sobriety is a positive thing that we need to maintain in order for us to be vigilant so our judgment will not be skewed. We don't want it we could, because, because if we do find ourselves not sober, it hinders our ability to be, which is next, vigilant. Now, what does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilant means to watch, refrain from sleep. It is a mindfulness of threatening dangers. So can you see that it would be difficult to be as vigilant as you could be, but also intoxicated at the same time? That's pretty, it's pretty easy, right? Easy to understand. The reason why you want to be vigilant and be watchful and to be mindful of threatening dangers, why is that important for the Christian? Because who is your enemy? The devil is your enemy. He's been doing this a long time, folks. He's good at it. I'd say he's better at, at tempting you than you are resisting him. He is very good. He's very sneaky. He is very cunning. He is like a roaring lion. So what is a lion like? Very sneaky, very calculated, very patient. And he always seeks to prey on the weak. Looks for that one opportunity whenever he can, can, he can pounce, whenever his prey is that they're distracted or caught up in something else, or he sees the weak one in the pack. Because we have an enemy, an adversary, the devil, who is like a roaring lion. And you've got to be vigilant if you're going to see his, if you're going to be able to notify or be able to um, recognize his tactics. Because if you look at a lion, yeah, if you're not vigilant, if you're not sober, you're not going to see that coming. Do y'all see the lion in there? Yeah. If you're not watchful, in Africa, I mean, it's very easily for that big, huge cat to sneak right up on you without even noticing. So that's why it's very important. And that's why, that's why Peter here is warning them, look, you've got to be sober. You've got to be vigilant. 
And you've got to be able to recognize that Satan is like a roaring lion who is seeking to eat you and to kill you and to destroy you. And you need to be in the best condition that you possibly can to recognize his tactics and see him when he's coming. Don't be distracted by the things of the world, but be vigilant. Be watchful. Don't, don't allow your judgment to get skewed because you're not going to see that coming unless you are being watchful and you are vigilant. So we must resist the devil. We must be sober and vigilant to see, diligent, or vigilant to see him coming in order to resist his attack. If you, usually if you don't see it coming, it catches you off guard and you often find yourself in it before you even know what happened. Very few, very few people, um, almost, almost really nobody, who has a testimony of, of long-term drug abuse or alcoholism or, or, um, or, in, or whatever kind of habitual sin that may have overtaken taken them, none of them ever go into it with the understanding and the expectation that, man, this is going to be a lifestyle for me. Very few do that. But it's a failure in being sober and vigilant and seeing the tactics of the devil and being able to resist that and saying, no, that's not for me. And then resisting it as opposed to giving in to that temptation. But also in resisting him, in verse 9, it says, Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering that you experience is the same experience that your brotherhood in the world are experiencing even now. So it's almost kind of like um, in, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about there is no temptation that's come unto you except that what is common to man. Suffering for the cause of Christ is common. Okay? It is, it's the norm in the world in which we live today. There's a large spectrum on how severe that might be, but however, suffering is common. So don't take it personal. This is something that following Christ is likely to bring you to. And, and also to understand that is that Satan, whenever he sees this happening, he doesn't like it. Okay, and he's going to be attacking you while you're walking in faith. But this is something that's experienced by the brotherhood in the world. And then finally, after we are sober, vigilant, and we are resisting, standing strong, doing all that we can to, to stand against the wiles of the devil, Peter begins to bring this to a close in verse 10. And this will kind of conclude our message. So our, our musicians, you can go ahead and make your way forward. But Peter offers his audience here in verse 10 one final word of comfort. After the warning, after the, after the exhortations, after the warning, he gives them a final word of comfort here. And he wants to remind them that God will empower and ultimately glorify those who remain steadfast in their faith and under the weight of their present suffering. There is blessing to come. Again, Paul, or Peter is going right back to the internal, eternal inheritance that we will one day receive. It says, But may the God of all grace, who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, listen to these words, after you have suffered, a while. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why does Christ get glory and dominion forever and ever? Amen. I would like to reflect back to the very first chapter. This has been my favorite portion of this entire book. 
In first chapter, first chapter, first chapter, in verses three, it says, "Blessed be the God of our Father, of, <clears throat> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is incorruptible, it is undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you." who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. What do we rejoice in? The persecution? The trials? The tribulations? The suffering? Is that the source of rejoice? No. Our rejoice is in the fact that we have an eternal inheritance that has been secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in his son, Jesus. And is secured, ready to be revealed. Glory is coming. Glory is coming. So even in the midst of persecution and suffering, that glory will never be taken away. It is a guaranteed promise reserved by the very power of God. And it will be revealed to you in the last day. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We're not going to get away from the various trials in this life, but it is a guarantee that there will be no more in the next for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll go ahead and finish out the chapter with just the reading of the last few verses as he names a few different people. He says, by Silvanus, which is typically, or, or which is uh, Peter's kind of a secretary. So by Salvanius, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of peace. And peace to you all, Remember, these are people in persecution. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's have a time of invitation and reflection that the Lord has spoken to your heart. And you need to deal with him. I pray that you do that.